0: I love how we, our anchors pray most weeks for another church. It's just one, one way that we want to remind ourselves of the fact that there's one church. When Paul wrote to, the, to Ephesus, to the Ephesian church, he said to the church in Ephesus. There were probably lots of, almost certainly, certainly lots of congregations that met in homes and other places, but we are one body scattered throughout the city and we want to work together, not, not against each other. Sort of defending our turf, as it were, but we have we have the same boss, and we want to pray for each other and work together to push back the darkness and to usher in and to build Christ's kingdom until and to speed His return. So that's just one way I'm reminded of that as anchors pray, and I'm thankful for that. Thank you, Cale. Um, okay, I have just a few announcements, not super typical, but just a couple really important things I want to say briefly, and then we'll jump in to this sermon. Um, the first is that first Sunday prayer, which is normally would be tonight. Uh, first Sunday of the month, we gather here, right in this room, at five o'clock to pray and to praise God for about an hour and fifteen minutes. Um, it's going to be second Sunday prayer this week because of Jan's Super Bowl. So uh, go watch the Super Bowl or do something else uh, festive tonight. We're not going to be here praying. If you come here, pray for me, pray for us. You'll be doing something better than the rest of us who are watching the Super Bowl. I'm sure um, we're going to push it to next to the tenth of tenth of February next Sunday. Five o'clock. So I'm looking forward to that with all of you, or some of you, anyway. Um, secondly, Ray and Holly Rivera, members of ours, they are starting a marriage course in their home soon. There's a sign up in the back that you can. Don't go now. I need to preach. But after the gathering is over, uh, I think it's it's there like are five slots, maybe six, but literally no more than six, five or six slots available for couples, married couples. So after that, done, their house is only a certain size and the the dynamics don't work with 10 couples. So uh, Ray's a believer, obviously, a counselor, a professional counselor, and Holly will be there as well with him, and they'll be, I think he'll be doing the majority of the teaching, but it's really gonna be a time of fellowship too. Um, It's a prepare and enrich group. So let me just read you the six weeks um, and you can find out about all the information in the back after, after this. But week one is sharing strength and growth areas. Personality and personal stress profile is two. Communication and conflict resolution, three. Four is finance and spirituality. Five is romance, sex, and affection. And six is closeness and flexibility slash family of origin. So, um, again, it's, it's really just to grow you in your faith, and in your marriage together to image Christ more and to love each other better. It's gonna be every Tuesday for six weeks from 7 to 8.30 at their home, starting on, here's the key detail, starting February 26th, in their home every Tuesday for six weeks after that. Um, And it's $35 a couple, but dinner's included, so it's basically free, free date to work on your marriage. Um, So anyway, if you're interested, literally five slots and then it's closed. So please talk to Ray; he'll be in the back afterwards, and maybe Holly too. Um, that's going to be great. I'm really excited that they're they're doing that. Um, last thing, last thing, and then and then we're going to jump in. End of year giving, we had an Advent campaign in December, on which we spent we gave most of it to our values, our partnerships, and then church planting. Uh, Paul eventually, but also the east end, the east uh, downtown church plant, which is. Is their first Sunday like today? I mean, it's maybe next week. It's super, it's in February. So really excited about that. We also had some, right before that, some love offerings, some benevolence giving that was sort of just needs in our body that that arose. I just wanna report, I haven't reported to you and you need to know, you deserve to know the final numbers for Advent giving. Now we had at least one big gift outside of our body, people that love us but aren't formally part, they aren't members here, but still Advent giving, guys. We were were going for 20,000, the number is $29,575 for Advent giving. So well done. Also, benevolence was 14535 So that's almost $45,000 that you guys gave toward uh, our, our needs and our values. So out of your generosity, your stewardship, I just want to say thank you very much. And can I just give God a hand and say thank you to you? Pray, clap for each other. I mean... That's something worth clapping for. I'm really proud of y'all. I'm thankful for you. I'm thankful for your hearts and your vision. Um, so that's that. Okay. Last week, I think I broke my little toe, pretty sure. I was wearing slippers around this morning and people were like, nice slippers. And I was like, I know, because my shoes hurt me because my foot's swollen. Best, toe to break, best bone to break, apparently, because you don't need to do anything about it and it's tiny, but it hurt like the dickens. So I've been talking about it for the past two weeks, um, like I did this morning and like I am right now. Probably, I've talked about my pinky toe more in the past two weeks than the entire 39 years combined of my life. Um, <clears throat> we don't notice what's working properly. We don't notice what's healthy. But man, you don't talk about your thumb or your pinky toe or your elbow ever really unless you injure it and it's sick and in need of treatment and then you talk about it all the time. Um, why is there so much talk about gender today? Why is there so much talk about gender today? It's not because it's healthy or working properly. It's because it's sick and broken in our culture. Do you hear healthy, sane people walking around proclaiming to the world, I'm healthy, I'm sane. No, they don't talk at all about it. They just are healthy and they are sane. And you can tell, Um, who does that? Who's constantly proclaiming their health? People that want to be healthy or think they're healthy but aren't sick people. Um, who's constantly proclaiming, trying to convince us of how sane they are? Insane people, um, the mentally unstable. So it is with sex and gender today. In our culture, in our country, sex and gender. I'm not saying the people are insane, and I'm saying the sex and gender and the whole discussion of it and the whole reality of sex and gender. They're extremely sick, they're in disrepair, they're broken. That's why we're talking about them so much. Um, so a few days ago on Fridays, I take my kids, I take one kid, I try to take one kid each week, because I have three children, and they're like this person storm when they're together, you know, this cyclone of activity and noise, it's all good, but um, the dynamics are different when, you, when you're with one, right? Every parent knows this, if you have more than one child. And so every Friday, I try to take one of them to Denny's. Uh, oh, God bless Denny's. You can get out of there for, with two plus a tip for $10. It's great. No, you're not getting orange juice. You're getting water. We have orange juice at home. You know. Um, I was with my smallest, my four-year-old Susanna, and she. we have not been talking about my sermon topic for the week, okay? We have not been talking about this. But she looks at me just out of nowhere. She's sitting in my lap. Because we were sitting across from each other, as you do. But then she's like, why why is this happening? And she came and got next to me. So she was sitting in my lap, or really right next to me. I can't remember which. And she just looked up at me out of nowhere and said, Dad, all daddies are boys, and all sons are boys. Profound words from the the mouth of a four-year-old. See, even our children know this. Even our children know better. It's intuitive. When children are teaching adults, the sophisticates even, the intelligentsia, the leaders in society, the avant-garde, um, it's another sign that our society is in the state of degeneracy and decline and very, very unwell. And this is the cultural moment. This is the milieu in which we're currently standing, okay? Um, let, me give you, let me just give you, before I, we jump into the, the hopeful the text and the truth of gender in the situation. And again, hey, not again, but just to be clear, I did not, this is, if, if I could have chosen a sermon for this morning with all these extended families and the baptism and dedication, it would not have been on gender. What it is, is we build out, we build out the sermon series and we're walking slowly through the first chapters of the Bible, into which is embedded the whole Bible. And um, all the answers we need, they're here. Uh, they lead us to Christ. And so just in God's providence, I mean, I think it's, it's the last sermon I would have chosen, But it's it's appropriate, isn't it? Because what we were doing is we were baptizing and dedicating little boys and little girls who will grow up, God willing, to be little, not little, who will grow up to be men and women, fully human. Um, And so let me just give you a few more um, facts uh, about the gender unhealth in our country, just the state of things, the pulse. So first of all, the current situation, transgenderism, the whole movement away from a binary male and female gender um, approach to humanity. Um, It's based on feeling, typically not facts, which you see when you dig into things. It doesn't align with what's real, okay? It aligns with what people believe and want to believe and feel. Um, A BBC video features a young woman who features uh, as, who calls herself non-binary. So again, not male or female, not man or woman. That's what she wants to be, uh, to move into and to be understood as saying, quote, it doesn't matter what living meat skeleton you've been born into, It's what you feel that defines you. It's what you feel that defines you. Um, It's what you feel that defines you. So, uh, there are things called... SOGI laws, laws are being passed that treat sexual attraction and gender identity as a protected category, just like race or religion, in public schools, businesses, housing, healthcare, prisons, even churches, and they're called SOGI or SOGI laws, sexual, it's an acronym, sexual orientation and gender identity laws. Um, They're passed based on the assumption that a person can be born into the wrong body. It's not the one that they feel, it's not the one that they've chosen, it's not the one the facts and biology point to. Um, And so that's the wrong body. A typical example of a SOGI law from a a California education code. um, Gender is, quote, a person's gender identity and gender-related appearance and behavior, whether or not stereotypically associated with the person's assigned sex at birth. What's the operative word here? Nancy Piercy, who's a local scholar, she's at HBU now, in her um, uh, wonderful book, uh, Love Thy Body, she says, the operative word is, quote, assigned. I don't know if you caught that. Assigned as though a person's sex at birth were arbitrary, just arbitrarily noted down instead of a biological fact. The, the, the Gay and Lesbian Alliance Against Defamation, (GLAD) says, quote, transgender is a term used to describe people whose gender identity differs from the sex the doctor marked on their birth certificate. Um... This paints the picture of a doctor standing over the birth certificate after the baby is born, uh, scratching his or her chin, and saying, hmm, having, having the pad out and saying, hmm, I wonder which gender I should assign here, which one should I mark down for this baby, instead of observing that it's a scientific fact, okay? What this language implies, Piercy notes, is that scientific facts don't matter. Feelings do. Feeling is now beginning to trump fact. I am what I choose to be. I can determine my reality. Facts don't matter, biology doesn't matter. However, sort of as a contrast, right? So that's feelings, Part of the, one of the marks of this movement is feelings trump facts, okay? However, gender is biological, and it's more extensive and profound just than what we can see, okay? In a popular TED talk, cardiologist Paula Johnson says, quote, Every cell has a sex. Do you know that? I didn't. Every cell has a sex, and what what that means is that men and women are different down to the cellular and molecular level. It means that we're different across all of our organs, from our brains to our hearts, our lungs, and our joints. And and the differences go even beyond that deep physical constitution, which we'll talk about in a second. Um, So it's it's feelings over facts. In the, in the, in the, uh, and we have more facts than ever because of um, microbiology and nanotechnology um, or really microbiology that show that this male and female binary difference, okay, complementary but different and distinct runs so, so deep all the way down to the core of who we are. So it's feelings over fact. But also, secondly, it's ironically hypocritical because it enforces, again, ironically, against what we would think. This movement of transgenderism it enforces it enforces rigid gender stereotypes. Let me give you a few examples. So Bruce Jenner uh, coming out as as Caitlin. This is who I was made to be, not Bruce, um, but Caitlin Now in the iconic how did it, how did he come out sort of with a flare in the iconic Vanity Fair cover photo of of him as Caitlin as a woman uh, appearing as a woman, I should say. The New York there was a New York Times article commenting that this photo, quote, offered us a glimpse into Caitlyn Jenner's idea of a woman. A cleavage-boosting um, corset, sultry poses, thick mascara, and the prospect of regular, quote, girls' nights of banter about hair and makeup. The, the New York Times article closes this comment by saying, that's the kind of nonsense that was used to repress women for centuries. So it actually enforces these rigid, here's what a woman is. Um, Trish, a woman named Trish left a comment on a trans website that's, that reads this way. Quote, as a little girl, I enjoyed both ballet lessons and playing in the mud. I liked miniskirts, and I wanted to be an astronaut when I grew up. It looks to me like the trans movement is fighting very hard to force everyone to choose whether to live in the blue box or the pink box, and no playing mix and match. She says, this to me is the opposite of freedom. The opposite of freedom. So it, ironically, it enforces in a lot of ways... Um, gender stereoty- rigid gender stereotypes, and we'll get to that a little bit more later as we get into the truth of our, of our gender and our sex. Um, thirdly, it undercuts women's rights. Again, ironically, it seems to be for women's rights, uh, for the right of someone to choose anything they want to, but it actually undercuts them. Nancy Piercy, again, she says, quote, if sex is a social construct, it makes no sense to stand up for women's rights. If there's no such thing as necessarily a woman or a man, there's no fact undergirding that. To protect women's rights, she says, we must be able to say what a woman is. Mary Lou Singleton, in the same vein of the Women's Liberation Front, says, quote, My entire life work is fighting for the class of people who are oppressed on the basis of their biological sex, including atrocities like forced child marriage, infanticide of baby girls, and female mutilation, I'm editing here, which occurs across the globe. But because of the gender identity movement, Singleton says, it is now deemed transphobic even to label these victims as women and girls. My four-year-old daughter knows better. My four-year-old daughter who just yesterday uh, we were talking about Disney World for some reason, there's a sort of there's a sort of um, internecine fight in our house between about Disney World in particular, and my wife loves it, and my kids, of course, want to go, and I'm like, staunchly opposed. I don't want to go. I went in eighth grade, and that was, that was plenty, plenty for me. I still have nightmares. Um, sorry, all of you Disney World fans. I know I'm offending a lot of you out there, more than even the sermon topic. It's Disney World that I hated in this man's sermon. I can hear it now. No, no So there's this fight going on, um, and I'm going to lose eventually. I'm sure of it. I'll just say it right now from the pulpit. Um, but my, my daughter came to me, she must've overheard us talking. She came to me with a quarter and a dime. And she said, I have two pennies, dad. And now we can go to Disney world. And I'm like, first of all, you're wrong about the coins. Secondly, that's not even going to touch anything. Um, She has no idea about most things, but she knows that daddies are boys. Um, and that, and that sons are boys. Um, fourthly, it's not liberating. It's incarcerating. Again, ironically, there's so many ironies. It's incarcerating, and it's chaotic and absurd. So um, studies apparently show that kids without any outward boundary, a physical boundary around themselves, tend to kind of hang together in clumps, and not, there's, no, there's no limit to which they can run out to, so they tend to just sort of huddle together. There, there are obviously outliers, um, but that's what studies seem to show when, um, when kids are together without a boundary at all. Um I've, been, I've mentioned this before, but I don't know if you've been to India. I was in Bangalore and Mysore and Yalahanka and some other places, and the, the traffic is insane. At least it was when I went 10 years ago. Um, it's crazy. You would think that there would be utter freedom because there aren't any lanes. Utter freedom, but it's, there's not freedom. It's chaos. I saw uh, there was a highway on which we were driving, and other things that I saw not even mentioned, there was a, a, a boy of probably 13 years old uh, on a bareback on a horse riding against traffic on the highway. Um, it was chaos. It wasn't, it wasn't freedom. No lines, no delineations, no borders, no boundaries. It's not, we think that means liberation, but God's word teaches differently. The Super Bowl tonight. Imagine football with zero limits. No lines, no rules, no offsides, no five-yard gain, no breakaway 45-yard run, no yards no 80-yard punt return, no sack because there's no line of scrimmage, no safeties, no touchdowns, no points. This is not f- free freedom at its highest. This is not amazing. This is, uh, this is absurd. This is meaningless. This is sad. Um, within that, and I want to I just sink into this for a minute or two, within that non-liberating idea, of the transgender movement and this confusion. Um, It's actually extremely culturally bound, in particular, this movement. Nancy Piercy says, quote, "'Postmodernists claim to liberate us "'from the oppressive rules and roles, "'but is this view really liberating?' Not at all. It says we're trapped within our culture's current worldview that we have no access to truths outside what we've been taught to think by our culture. So it is telling us what is true, Okay, and it is very narrowly culturally confined and time-bound. Um, let me illustrate this in another way through a teacher, pastor, writer called Tim Keller. Um, while he was lecturing at Oxford, he came up with this thought experiment uh, involving an Anglo-Saxon warrior from 800 AD and a, and a modern, urbane Manhattanite walking around the city. Um, he said, imagine the Anglo-Saxon warrior with a battle axe, maybe, on his back, kind of like a Braveheart type thing. He's walking around Britain in 800 AD, and he has two urges, two feelings. One of them is to break people, to attack. There's an aggressive urge to attack, to fight, um, to, to attack people, to harm them, the enemy, okay, or just people in general, and to assault and the other urge is he's attracted, he's, there's the same sets of attraction. So again, I'm gonna focus in three weeks on marriage and we're gonna talk about homosexuality more pointedly. But again, it's all, it's all related, this gender confusion, okay? Um, and so he, he was saying there are two urges that he has. Now, which one is he gonna pay attention to and act on and which one is he gonna push aside? He's gonna act on the first one and he's gonna say, that's who I really am. And he's gonna push aside the second one, Why? Because his culture doesn't aid and abet that. His culture isn't teaching him that. His culture is pushing him into this other funnel. Okay, so by contrast, the Manhattanite young man, he's walking around and he has the same two urges. Well, he's gonna repress the first one to attack, to assault people, to harm people, okay, with whatever weapon, fists or otherwise. And he's going, he also, remember, has the urge to, uh, to pursue an attraction with the same sex, okay? That's who I am. I'm going to pursue that one. Why? Is it because they're utterly free and uninfluenced? This is Keller's point. No. The point is that it's because they um, are choosing, not of their own selves and of their own power and genius, um, to, be, to be their selves that they tell themselves to be, but rather they're choosing to be the selves that their cultures tell them to be. Highly, highly influenced and directed by our cultures. This may feel like freedom and like being master of our own destiny. Um, In reality, though, friends, we're being incarcerated and imprisoned by our culture, okay, by a very narrow time and space. C.S. Lewis, he he in a sense calls this, he's talking about reading, but in a larger sense, he calls this syndrome chronological snobbery. Okay, chronological snobbery to sort of to think that we've arrived and to basically ignore the rest of human history and not to learn from it. To say no, this is where we are and this these are the shackles we have to throw off and we've reached the ultimate cultural moment. Um, We have when we look at history, we call various bits of history that we, we see movements in them and tendencies. We call them periods. We have to remember we have to have the humility to remember not to be chronological or time snobs, but to remember that we're we are a period too. And just as others had blindnesses, like think about your grandparents. Your grandparents, you might know a lot about them. You may know nothing about them. You may know something about them. But if you know enough about them, you are going to come across fairly quickly as you study their lives, things that they believed, that they really a lot of times didn't question, that they adopted unquestioningly because of their culture, that we would now rightly just shake our heads at and go, i I'm embarrassed. It is, here's to follow, this is Keller, but also Lewis, to follow Lewis's train of thought. It is absolute naivete and foolishness and chronological snobbery to think that our grandkids aren't going to have to look at us and our culture and what we unquestioningly embraced to think the similar things about us, okay? And so to question those things and not to let our culture hem us in, but to get some sort of wisdom from outside, how do we do this? how do we do this? Um, we go back to the source. The, the, the Renaissance battle cry, when they rediscovered all these ancient texts from Greece and elsewhere, um, was ad fontes in the Latin, back to the fountain or back to the sources. So they would go back, not to the accretion of medieval commentaries that had gathered over the centuries, but back to Aristotle back to the original sources that had been rediscovered and brought over from the East, okay? And so um, that, was, that actually helped lead to the Reformation. Back ad fontes, back to the sources, back to the source, back to the Bible, back to the only book, aside from imitators, aside from imitations that came later, the only book that has ever claimed to be the word of God for the people of God through God's people, okay? Um, we go to ancient texts. Why? Because not because they didn't have blind spots. They have different blind spots. And so they, we can see those blind spots because we're not in them, but they help us see ours because they're, they're, not, they're not bound by our culture. The Bible was written within culture, but it claims to be the word of God written by God through men, by the one who sees all over all cultures and to all cultures. It's not it's in culture, to culture, but it's not culture-bound. That's its claim, okay? So what's the biblical picture that Kale read in Genesis 1 and 2 here of what? Of gender, of human gender. What, just briefly, what do we see here in contrast to what we're sitting, what? Right in the middle of in this period of ours. Why am I preaching this? Because first of all, it's here, but secondly, so it's here in the text, so I need to preach it. I, I don't, I, I, my flesh wants to skip it but I need to preach it because it claims to have something to say to us and two, because it really does because we are here in this cultural moment and we need to, and I'll get to this at the end, fight. We need to fight with truth and hey, and I'll get to this, in love, okay? And I'm gonna get to that. So what, what does the Bible say in contrast about our in-gendered humanity? First of all, it's elevating. It elevates gender. It doesn't downgrade it. We're not meat skeletons, um, okay, gender is intrinsic in this first text of the Bible. Hey, why, again, my contention in the class that I'm teaching at nine and here as we walk through these first four chapters of the Bible this spring is, is constantly, the Bible is amazing in so many ways. One of the ways it's amazing, it was written over 1,500 years by about 40 different authors. And yet within the first three chapters, it has everything that the Bible grows into downloaded into it. The DNA, the seed, the acorn of the entire reach of salvation history, all the way through to revelation in Christ's return and the new heavens and new earth, is packed in to these three chapters. How, case in point, how, how is gender, this modern problem, how is it touched on relevantly here? It was written 3,400 years ago in a, in a deceptively apparently, I should say, simple but very complex text about God speaking, a garden, a man and a woman, a snake, because everything we need is downloaded in seed form, reduced here, okay? What do we see about gender here? Very briefly, gender is intrinsic to what it means for us to be made in God's image. God, You know the story. We've talked about it before, even if you hadn't, if you've been here at all, but if you haven't, just a few seconds on how in Genesis 1, God made all things. It's an order of ascending importance, basically. He makes all things over the course of six days. And what? The old phrase, he saves the best till last. He saves the best till last. He makes humans last to rule and reign as his image bears alone. Nobody else gets to be made in his image over all that he's made. And all that he's made is very good, okay? And um, he... What do I want to say here? With all the other things that he makes, it's just fiat, it's just command. It's let there be and there is. Every time the refrain's the same, let there be, let there be. There's no consideration. It just is because all things come about by the power of God's word. And yet with humanity, he pauses as it were and it says it's a break from the constant refrain. It's not let there be, it's let us make. Right here, we have one of the first glimpses into the Trinitarian councils of God. God is not solitary. He's a community. He's one in essence, but he's a community of persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we have this community saying, let us make humanity in our image a community, okay? A solidarity, a unity, but a community. And it's the best of what we're going to make, and we're going to put our likeness and image on it, um, so it's intrinsic to what makes us human. It doesn't just say, God didn't just say, and, and, he, and it, uh, let us make man in our image, and so he made human, human being, or humanity. That's not all that we get. We get, and, and so he made them, male and female. So part of the first time that we see humanity made in God's image, what's the stamp of Imago Dei? What is the stamp of the divine image? What is first unpacked and unfolded for us in Genesis 127? It's that he makes us male and female. A binary, engendered engendered nature, male and female, equal in worth but distinct and complementary, just like the sun and moon, just like the earth and sky, just like the night and day. It happens throughout creation. And then his coup de grace, his cherry on the top of the banana split Sunday. His best for last, male and female. Male and female alone, together, best and fully image, as God intended, himself in his Trinitarian nature. Isn't that beautiful? You can't, hey, here's the short form of saying what I'm trying to say. You can't get a, more of, a, of an exalting, ennobling, uh, validating stamp of approval on gender than what we get at the end of Genesis 1. So it's, it's, it's the opposite, okay? It's the opposite. Um, also, it's liberating. It's not just ennobling and exalt. It doesn't just exalt gender and think the best of it and how it's intrinsic to our image. It's liberating. Recall those kids on the playground that I mentioned how if there's no limit around them, they just clump. Um, when there's a fence put around them, when there's a, a delineation of border, Studies show quite the opposite happens. They run, they take advantage of the full space because there's a limit. There are delineations there and there's freedom within those. They can go to any place. They can play in the mud or wear a skirt. Okay? Um, they can play with dolls. They can be an astronaut. It's not one box or the other. Okay? It is gender wise, but within that delineation, they can play. Okay? They can break all these boundaries that we put on them now because we don't, we're, we're trying to eliminate those. Shackles as we see them, right? Um, again, games like the football game I said that have boundaries and rules can be played and enjoyed. Let's play Monopoly. All right, how do you play? I don't know, there's, there aren't any rules. It's extra fun. It's the extra fun version of Monopoly. No board, <laughs> no boardwalk. There's just nothing. You can do whatever you want. That's dumb. I don't want to play, Okay. The rules give us a game. They give us something to play within. We need to recognize by contrast with what our culture is telling us and embrace and revel in our limitations and delineations as male and female and to live into maleness and femaleness complementarily. Okay? Um, We are eternal finite beings. I was born a man and cannot be a woman. Um, recognizing this limit blesses me and those around me. I was made for it. Just like groundhogs are blessed when they recognize they cannot fly. And hawks are blessed when they recognize they should not and cannot live well underground, okay? Um, Have you ever used a pencil that wanted to try to be a stapler? Pencils don't staple well at all, just terrible. But they write super well. Stapler that you try to write with, it's absurd. A stapler was made to staple. A pencil was made to write with. Um, A hammer was made to pound. Nancy Piercy, again, she says this Instead of escaping from the body, the goal is to live in harmony with it. And again, this idea, this biblical idea of gender that we have here, it's at the core of what it means to be human, as far as what God is telling us. It's not peripheral, it's not something on the edge of our humanity. It's, it is what makes us a huge core foundational fact that makes us human. It's not dependent on feeling, it's factual. And it's, far, it's, it's more pervasive than just our bodies and even just ourselves. It's spiritual, it's intellectual, it's emotional. Equal but distinct and meant to be compliments. Um, what is given to the woman in uh, what God says he's going to do when he makes someone for Adam that is suitable for him, none of the animals were suitable, right? Right? Another man wasn't, wasn't suitable. He's gonna make someone of equal worth to Adam, but literally the Hebrew says um, an opposite like or like opposite. Like him in his humanity of equal worth, but opposite. Looking into him, literally the Hebrew means looking into his eyes face to face on the same footing, but stands distinct and opposite, and fills in his gaps. You know, the, the, the philosopher and theologian uh, Rocky Balboa, as, as he put it so well to, to Adrian, I think in the original Rocky, he said, hey, oh, I got gaps, you got gaps, together we got less gaps. He was basically exegeting uh, the middle and the end of Genesis chapter 2. And I'm sure he knew that. But that's exactly what God made us to be in the way that images him best, okay? Satan hates God. Satan hates God. So when God, he wants to destroy God's creation, especially when God says the best to last and makes something that he puts, that he makes in his own image and says, fill the earth with my image and do it by being, by coming together as binary male and female opposites. We'll get more to that in three weeks. Um, Satan, if he can't destroy God and he can't, what's he going to go after? He's going to go after his image. And how is he going to do that? He's going to go after gender. He's going to mar it. He's going to destroy it. He's going to try to blow it up. And that's exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. How do you, in, the, all, the, in all the movies, the, uh, where the, you have this hero that's like untouchable, he's just, you know, he's just destroying everybody in his path, and he's moral and upright, and there are no weaknesses What does the arch enemy always do to get him? Who does he go after? His kids. His wife or his kids. Satan is no dummy. He's smarter than all of us put together. He's thoroughly evil and he's a a deceiver and a liar, but he's smart. He's been around a long time. He's been observing us a long time. And he knew that the best way to get at God was to go take his children down. And he knows one of the fundamental ways he can do that is by attacking gender. So is this just their problem? I'm gonna transition now into the gospel, okay? Um, And then give us some things to think about and then we're done. Is this just their problem? Am I just talking about sort of the world out there? May God let it never be the case that anyone in this pulpit, in this church, ever preaches or teaches in such a way that I, that, I, that I preach that? No, a few reasons, three reasons, why not? One, think about our kids. Our kids are just starting to grow up and this is seemingly a runaway train that's just gonna get worse, okay? I'm not fatalistic, I have great hope. I have great hope. You know, you know the New Testament was written into a culture that was farther along in degeneracy than ours, the Roman culture? Infanticide was normal. Okay, transgenderism was quite normal. All these things. And was that talked about a ton? Not really. The gospel was proclaimed. There's hope. Culture changing, Christ bringing new creation, endowing hope, okay? Um, But for our kids' sake, we have to talk about this. We have to address this. We have to talk about it with them. We have to talk about it together together. We have to let them see the beauty of, of what the Bible says about gender and our humanity, okay? Um, if we're citizens of this country, we have to care about our country enough to talk about this in the public square. Um, it, it, we don't hide the truth. We do it not in judgment, but in truth. We, we speak the truth in love, with boldness. Um, but also for my neighbor out there, especially the ones suffering from gender dysphoria, it's misery. They might say it's liberty, but it's, it's, it's wreaked so much havoc and will continue to do so as long as it exists. It's plunged many into darkness and chains. Um, my neighbor's welfare is my concern. My neighbor's problem is my problem because God said, love thy neighbor as thyself. And then he did it. He came down from heaven and he loved us in such a way that it was at ultimate cost to himself to bring us back to him and back to his father. Um, so, Perhaps most poignantly, though, um, it's not just a problem out there with our kids, with our country, with our neighbor. It's a resident evil, okay? As Sam Albury says, um, he's a same-sex attracted, celibate evangelical minister and author in in the UK. Um, He says, none of us, get this, none of us is straight. According to the Bible, none of us is straight. None of us can point the finger. Why? Why? We can speak about truth, but not in a preachy way because we're all bent. We're all horribly bent, disfigured, and shattered. In fact, the Bible says we're dead in our sins and trespasses. Sin has thoroughly bent us and and ruined and marred um, humanity in us. It's a human problem. Um, God made all things good he made male and female persons good in complementarity to image uh their creator in the masculine and feminine glory that they were given um but they chose to enthrone themselves over god we do it every day and all that was at their um all that was their domain to tend turned to dust um our first parents through their disobedience cracked all they had dominion over a good creation and they cracked we are all bent. None of us is straight. Um, We may not struggle with gender dysphoria, but none of us is as God intended or intends us to be. So just a few examples, all manner of infidelities in each of our own hearts, um, from adultery to lust to unwarranted longing. But just to stick to gender-specific malformation for now, Um, men were made to initiate chiefly in love, women created to receive. Um, There's so much more to it, but men are the heads, women the helper, not taken from Adam's side, not from the ground like Adam was, but from him, not from his head to rule over him and not from his feet to be stomped on and domineered over, right? From his head to be an equal, from his, excuse me, from his side to be a helper, an equal, but looking him in the face opposite, okay? Different, imaging the Trinity. Um, Our bentness as men often um, results in being overbearing and abusive or passive, sort of ironically. Counterintuitively, we can be passive instead of rising up and leading in love like we're supposed to be. Men tend toward passivity or being overbearing and abusive. Women can strive to control um, instead of receiving and helping, and and that often manifests in manipulation, uh, nagging, gossip. Um, We could go on. We could go on. And those are just, even those aren't necessarily always true in our sin and bentness, and there are a thousand other examples, but that's just a touch, okay? The point is, We all fall short of God's glory and of our original intended goodness. And in our more honest moments, all excusing aside, we we understand this. So what do we do? So we are all bent. But as many of us know, as we need to be reminded, as some of us don't know, there was one who became one of us, and this is what the gospel is, who was not bent. Who was straight as an arrow in every way who was in perfect relationship with God, untainted by sin, fully loving God from the heart and fully loving his neighbor as himself. And he came and he entered our darkness and he took our darkness upon himself. And on the cross, he became completely deranged and bent. And really, if I can say this, as God, as man, as the God-man, he was disintegrated. He was eviscerated, body and soul, on the cross. He took into himself the effects of our sin and our curse in order to pay for them before it just God and to bury them and to rise as the first fruit of a new creation. And it's in him, in this one who was straight and who was bent for us, that we can truly be made whole. He was broken so that we can be made whole. He, he is what we are running after, even if we don't know. What did G.K. Chesterton say? Every, every man who knocks on the door of a brothel is looking for God. He's the one that our souls crave, even if we think it's, we wanna, I'm a man born in a I'm a, I'm a, I'm a man, I'm a woman, but I was born in a man's body, or vice versa, or whatever it is that we're running after that we think will define us or be our freedom. It's him. And yet he took our slavery into himself, and paid for it on the cross, and buried it. And he is our way to the Father, and he is our way to true satisfaction and freedom. Um, let me end with two stories, a reminder, and a charge, okay? Um, there was a kid named Brandon that actually, this is, this is a true story that um, this author that I've been telling you about, Nancy Piercy, tells in her excellent book. Again, it's called Love Thy Neighbor. I'd highly recommend it. Um, she's well acquainted with this, with this boy, and his... Um, and has spent a lot of time with him. He was out of step. His name's Brandon. He was out of step with this John Wayne masculinity that we see portrayed in our culture a lot of times. I love John Wayne. I'm a fan, but I think there's a wider, there's a wider spectrum of masculinity than John Wayne, right? He wasn't interested in sports or video games, but in relationships and emotions. Um, he said he felt like a girl on the inside. And hey, that's what his culture was telling him, right? Hey, you were born in the wrong body. Yet he admitted I realized surgery wouldn't change the way I looked, but it, uh, it would change the way I looked, but it wouldn't change my genes and chromosomes. So what did his parents do? His parents worked to help him understand and not buy into the lie that he was a girl on the inside, that God should have made you a girl, but that he was an especially sensitive, emotional, uh, relational boy. It's not that you're wrong, Brandon, it's that the narrative of our culture is wrong and is a lie. Um, so they introduced him to stories like Esau and Jacob where it's Esau that's the John Wayne man, but it's Jacob who's the homebody who hangs out with mom and cooks. He's the one that God, the second, the younger, the one that in the ancient narratives typically isn't blessed and doesn't get all the, he's the one that God blesses and sends forth, okay? Not because of anything he's done, but because God chose him and loved him. David, King David, he was a warrior poet. He's called the sweet psalmist of Israel. He killed people in battle, He was a warrior, but he was also a deeply thoughtful, reflective, relational person who cries out for the living God. He wants to know and be known by God. And he longs for him. He thinks about God on his bed. Okay, he wasn't, that wasn't part of his bentness. That was part of the way God made him. We need to have categories for that, and the Bible does. In the New Testament, the gifts of the Spirit aren't divided by gender. Prophecy and teaching are not masculine. Mercy and service aren't feminine. The Spirit distributes them to each one just as he determines, 1 Corinthians 12, 11. Um, The greatest man who ever lived, Jesus Christ, how did he describe himself? Come to me, come to me, for I am gentle. I'm gentle and lowly of heart. And he showed his power to us through his gentleness by submitting to the will of the Father and dying in our place. Um, His parents also showed him how gender stereotypes are often arbitrary Um, based on historically changing social roles. So in the pre-industrial society in the West, uh, before the Industrial Revolution, women often worked, the wife would often work right alongside the man on the family farm. Um, And the man was often way more involved in his children's education because he worked out of the home typically, on the land. And so it wasn't the man goes off to work and is away from the family and the woman is the one doing all the stuff around the house and the woman isn't helping the man in his labor really until about 200 years ago. So is it wrong the way we live now? No, but it's a cultural product. And to be able to see that rather than buying into it and thinking and baptizing it with a sort of mandate from on high, they helped him see that. Um, We must take care not to add to scripture by baptizing gender expectations that are in reality just historically contingent, arbitrary. So that's the first story. The second is of a man named uh, Walt Heyer, uh, H-E-Y-E-R, Walt Heyer. He's a cross-dresser. He was. And he had surgery to live as a woman. He thought that was his freedom. That was his true identity. But eight years later, after that surgery, he believed on Christ and was saved. Um, He transitioned then back to living as a man. And he said this. He said, The restoration of my sanity would only come by reversing the gender change and going back to living as the male God had made me to be. The biological fact is that no one can change from one gender to another except in appearance. Our only chance, says Piercy, our only choice, she says, rather, is whether we accept our biological sex as a gift from God uh, or reject it. So a reminder, those two stories, um, and and a reminder and a charge, the reminder is this. We're not just speaking, when when we stand on truth, we're not just speaking about facts. We're warring against powers and principalities that we cannot see, but that are raging in the heavenly realms. As Paul said to the church at Corinth, he says, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. For we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. And the charge is this. We, let, let us speak truth, the truth that God has revealed to us in his word about our humanity, and our gender. Boldly, the stakes are high. Everything is on the line. Uh, but let us love those who are confused and hurting and even hating us And God. They are not the enemy, friends. I can often think that they are, or whatever they are, the, the person that's opposed to God or opposed to me is an enemy. But we're told to love our enemies and we're told that we have one enemy, Satan and sin. To rage against those by standing on the truth and the truth is Jesus Christ and that he's come for 100% of people who do not deserve what he gives, which is all of himself and a full access to God, his father, okay? Through his perfection, given to us freely through his broken body and blood. Um, so they're not the enemy, Satan, sin, and death are. And those things have been defeated by Christ, our arch, uh, our arch champion, our archagon, um, King Jesus so the first church, before he actually, when he, after he'd come to Christ, perhaps, and before he transitioned into being a man again, Walt Tire, um, the first church that he went to asked him, actually asked him to leave. The pastor literally drove after the service to the man's house, knocked on his door, and he said this. He said, we don't want your kind in our church. Do we want to send the message that they need to solve they, people. I don't care if it's transgenderism, gender dysphoria. I don't care what it is. It's it's not gonna be that obvious a lot of times, but let's say it is. Do we wanna send the message that they need to solve their issues before showing up in our midst? No, that's what we're for, to give Christ to all because we're all sinners and we're all broken. None of us is straight. uh, Belong, friend. And at some point, we want you to believe. We hope you will believe. And if you don't, you still belong. And then eventually behavior comes over the course of a life through faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done and who he is. And lastly, we need to listen and not just talk and not just speak truth. We have things to learn. Um, Piercy says, churches must also recognize that people with gender issues are not just needy people with problems. Many have gone through intense emotional and psychological healing and have much to offer in ministry to others. Quote, having these issues, Walt says, has caused me to listen carefully to Jesus because I know I need his help. Many of gender dysphoric people that are seeking, that are hurting, that have come to Christ or not, have, gone, have had to go through, and if they're on their path to healing, have had to go through a lot of soul searching that we haven't and that we would do well to learn from. So we have lots to learn, and we have, we have only love to give because it's what's been given us in the person of Jesus Christ. So may this tribe increase, Lord. Um, may we be a hospital for sinners and not a museum for saints, to use an old, worn phrase. Um, let's pray. Father, it's, it's a heavy topic. It's, it's a topic that's needful. I thank you for giving it to us at the start of your word, for showing us a big part of what it means to be human, to image you. Help us to be unabashed in speaking truth and shameless in our love, profligate, Lord, prodigal in our love as children of our Father who indeed is a prodigal God. We love you. We bless you. Make us into the image of Jesus Christ. Um, Thank you for what you're doing and for who you are. In Jesus' name, for his glory. Amen.